All right, go ahead and turn to the book of 1 Peter, and we're going to be in chapter 3 this evening. And as we start out, if you decided to read ahead to what is coming up for this evening, there might have been a moment in your Bible reading, the paragraph that's selected for tonight, where you thought, what in the world? What does this passage mean? And if you felt that way, or if you've ever read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, and thought, okay, what is happening in this text? Let me assure you, you're not alone. Let me give you a few quotes about what scholars, commentators, preachers have said about this paragraph, which makes me want to say at the beginning that tonight is going to feel a little bit more like a Bible study, because it is a complicated text, and we're going to have to do a lot of turning into various passages. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, find one on your phone. Go to BibleGateway.com, and you can use that for the evening. Um, Or just hopefully look over to your neighbor. But we are going to be looking into various texts to try to understand what Peter meant in this passage. One commentator that I read this afternoon said this, this paragraph is notoriously obscure and difficult to understand. Martin Luther We all know him from church history, uh, wrote uh, tons of commentaries. This is what he said about this paragraph. This is a strange text, and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still don't know for sure what it means. This is after his study and his life of New Testament scholarship. One of the scholars today said this is the most difficult text in the New Testament. So people do various things with this passage. And I want to say those quotes only to kind of prepare you that we're going to have to work through it to understand exactly what Peter meant. There's what's called the Apostles' Creed. It comes from the 4th century. Some of you may have read it. It's become a foundational theological document from church history to a lot of uh, denominations even today. And they take this passage and they kind of classify it as the harrowing of hell, the harrowing of hell. The idea being Jesus goes to hell to declare salvation to the people that died before Jesus was alive, but those who believed in the coming Messiah. And again, they take this idea from this text, and it's a very famous creed. Well, one last quote for you. This passage is fraught with problems. Text critical problems, which means when we look at the New Testament, There are multiple manuscripts that have been found, just under 6,000, about 5,800 of them in the Greek language. And so we piece them all together to try to understand what is the very first version of each New Testament book. Okay, That's what's called text criticism, textual criticism. And so this passage has questions about that. You know, what is the very first version of this text? So it has text critical problems. It has grammatical problems ambiguities. It has lexical uncertainties, the meaning of words, theological issues, as well as questions about its theological and historical background. All to say, it's going to take you some time, and it took me some time, to figure out what it says, but let me encourage you in this way. While, quote, commentators have shaken their heads in despair after studying this text, The ultimate meaning is pretty simple. The ultimate meaning of verses 18 through 22 of chapter 3 is this. Peter 
is setting up Jesus as the example of suffering and calls us as believers to follow him. And he encourages us to do that by displaying certain outcomes, results, certainties that have occurred because of Jesus' suffering. Last week, we talked about Jesus. We talked about rather our suffering. Peter's call to suffer for doing what is right, for doing what is good. In verse 13, he says, be zealous for what is good. He ends that paragraph, verse 17, by saying, do what is right, and then you may suffer for it. Now he says, let me give you an example of somebody who did what is right and who suffered for it, for it and then here's what happened. So that's the connection between last week and this week. And just as a quick reminder, last week, we said that the reason that we should be faithful amidst hostility and opposition for the sake of the gospel is because it's a blessing to suffer because you will receive a blessing. Secondly, the way to respond appropriately is to calm your fears. Don't fear them, their intimidation and their threats of fear. Instead, You need to consecrate your Lord, set him apart in your life as the ultimate authority. And so you will follow and submit to him. Next, we said that you do so, you demonstrate that you've definitely submitted your life to Jesus as Lord when you communicate the hope that's within you, when you share the gospel with people, because you understand from this passage and from so many other passages in the New Testament, that faithfulness to preach the gospel immediately solicits opposition. Those who are faithful will be persecuted. But what that does to you internally is it gives a peace of conscience that you are doing what's right and your conscience is calm. It's at peace. It is appropriately calibrated to what God expects. And finally, you remember that as you do so, you are doing God's will. That's why we do it, because you are fulfilling the will of God. So that was last week why we suffer unjustly, why we remain faithful when people oppose us for the gospel, is because of all of those elements. Those are the reasons to do so, and that's how we respond. But tonight, we focus on the results. Last week was all about the response to unjust suffering. This week is all about the results that happen when we suffer unjustly, but specifically, he focuses on Christ and says, this is what happens. When the most unjust hostility takes place on this planet. Because of all the people that have ever lived who was treated harshly and mistreated, Jesus is the one who was most unjustly mistreated. And so now we get to see what happened because of that hostility. And so let's pay attention to verses 18 through 22. You can follow along as I read 18 through 22 of 1 Peter chapter 3. For Christ also. That immediately connects us back to verses 13 through 17. For Christ also suffered. In your Bible, it may say died. That's the meaning. We're talking about his death. But the word is suffered. You know why? Because suffering appears in every single chapter of this book. We just talked about suffering. He's trying to connect this paragraph to the greater theme of suffering in the book. So he uses the word suffered as opposed to the one moment death of Jesus in Jesus' life. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all. So that is specifically referring to his crucifixion. The just for the unjust. So that he may bring us to God. 
having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. There are a number of questions that immediately arise just from the reading of this text. And so we're going to make our way through them. But here's how I want us to understand it. I want to put one simple header over this entire passage. And that is the results of Jesus's suffering. The title for this message would be Christus Victor. Christus Victor is a famous theological term that means Jesus on the cross became victorious over hostile enemies, over opposition, over the demons and Satan and the world of darkness. He was the victorious one. And in this suffering, what Peter accents is the triumph of Christ. The fact that Jesus is the triumphant one. And when we think about somebody who's in pain, somebody who's, in su- who's suffering, somebody who's being opposed, you don't really think about that individual as the triumphant one, right? You think about him as a victim. You think of her as the one who is in pain and you want to help that individual. Peter takes a different angle. He says, no, let's look at the suffering of Christ. And instead of approaching that story as him being a victim, let's look at him as the victor. He is the triumphant one. And through his triumphant suffering, the first thing that is certain, the first outcome, the first result is the penalty for sin. The penalty for sin happens because of Jesus' suffering. Verse 18, Christ also died for sins once for all. Once for all, the just for the unjust. The idea of Jesus dying once contrasts the Old Testament imagery of a priest every single year going into the temple and offering sacrifices to pay for the sins of the people in Israel. It was a repeated act. And every single time you did that, it was a reminder that you you keep sinning. And therefore, you need to keep paying for your sins. Jesus Christ did this once. It speaks to the finality of his sacrifice. On the cross in John chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus declared, it is finished. There's no more sacrifice needed, no more death. All the sins had been atoned for. The debt was paid in full. How many of you have ever paid off a debt? Any debt. Car loan, school loan. Jay's really excited about it. He's jumping up and down, waving his arms to be recognized. Debt, you know, car loan, school loan, credit card debt, maybe, right? You, you kind of, maybe some of you have done that. Some of you maybe have paid off a home loan. Anybody paid off a home loan? I want to see those hands. Our newest leadership couple, Tammy and John Scott, we welcome you. I'll clap for that. And I bet it felt amazing, right? After probably 30 years or close to 30 years. So if you've ever paid off a debt, you know the feeling. 
It's a feeling of relief and satisfaction. And you're like, I'm done with this. Jesus paid the debt of sin once for all. Every single sin that you have ever committed, that I have ever committed, and will commit. And remember, we sin every single day. And every single one of those sins have been paid for. There's not a single sin that Jesus missed. There's not a single sin that he said, that's too much. I can't cover that. Once for all, the just for the unjust. Everything has been paid for. But I hope that you pause and you reflect on that simple, very familiar statement to all of us. Because we have to recognize that every single sin deserves help. And we become so familiar with our sin. We become so protective of our ongoing sins. So secretive with our sins. that we forget that it deserves help. That's the penalty. That's the judgment from God. And Peter says, one time, one death, one sacrifice, one payment, done. John and Cammy probably made 360 payments for their house. You might have made 20 or 30 payments for your debt. One payment completely satisfied the judgment for God. If that's the case, let me encourage you to stop manufacturing guilt to feel better about your sin that you feel bad about. You know what I'm saying? You know that you sinned, and you wish you didn't, but you did. But now to kind of atone for it, you kind of put yourself in this place of feeling guilty for hours, days, weeks perhaps. Remember, Jesus Christ atoned for that sin. That is not to say that there should be no guilt, immediate guilt, no remorse, no repentance for every single sin. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying any kind of emotional response to feel cathartic. I feel better because I feel so guilty. That's not biblical. That's not allowed. Because you're beginning to question the final payment of Jesus Christ. The once for all payment for your sin. And here, Peter says, the just for the unjust, which is substitution. That's all that is. Substitutionary atonement. That's where we get that theological term from. Jesus Christ died as a just individual for those who weren't just. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we may become the righteousness of God through him. That's the substitution that took place. But there's a second implication from this statement. It's not just the finality of it. That our sin is fully paid for. There's a second implication. That the suffering of Jesus, remember, Christ also suffered. That's the word. The suffering of Jesus had an end. There was an end point. He didn't keep suffering forever and ever and ever. Remember the implication here. He's trying to say, I'm calling you to be faithful amidst your suffering. 
Now I'm going to give you an example of Jesus suffering, but that suffering had an end. Therefore, your suffering will have an end, will have an end as well. You will also come to an end in whatever difficult state of life you might be in right now for the sake of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4.17 makes it very clear. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Momentary light affliction, eternal weight of glory. That's the contrast. That your suffering will end and it will end in a glorious way that is far beyond all comparison. Think about Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12 says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and then set at the right hand of God on high. So the glory that Jesus will experience for eternity as the one who rules over the entire universe is far greater than the suffering that he underwent on the cross. Not to minimize the cross in any way, but to say that the eternal glory exceeds that moment on the cross. So when you think about your suffering, what Peter is saying, consider the fact that there will be an end. Now, certainly, as you look through church history, you look at contemporary Christianity, it may end in death. A horrible, torturous death. Christians die every single year through persecution. So it may end that way. There's a promise that your life of suffering may end well on this earth. But it will end. And so there's a promise of finality and a promise of a conclusion. But remember this. Jesus' horrible, unjust suffering resulted in the payment for our sin. There was no way around that. That's the certainty of that reality. That the penalty is paid because of suffering. The second outcome is we have a way to God. The pathway to God has been established, has been restored. One commentator said this is the shortest and the simplest, but one of the richest summaries of the cross. In the middle of the verse. So that he might bring us to God. If you want to know what, are, what is one of the certainty, certainties of the cross, you can come back to God. The path to God was forbidden. Verboten, you know, German. Strong word, right? Good German word. Forbidden, prohibited. No access. You were a trespasser. Even if you wanted to come back to God, you would be considered a trespasser. I would be considered a trespasser. There was no access. There were signs everywhere. You can't come back to God. You are a sinner. Remember what happened to Adam and Eve? They were expelled from the Garden of Eden. And an angel was placed outside the garden to protect their entrance back in. You couldn't have fellowship with God anymore because of sin. And then it says in a simple sentence, Jesus suffered so that he may bring us to God. The pathway to God has been restored. There's an allusion back to chapter 1. If you look at verse 20 of chapter 1, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, 
but has appeared in these last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. But right before he says that Jesus was foreknown for what purpose? Verse 19, to shed his precious blood, the unblemished, spotless blood of Christ. So it took a sacrifice for the path to God to be restored. There are four statements in 1 Peter that I want you to take note of that speak to the result of the cross. They are so that statements. There's only four of them. So that statement. Listen to 21. Jesus suffered so that you would follow in his steps. So there's an implication of imitation. Jesus suffered so that you would follow in his steps when you're suffering. The second statement is in chapter 2, verse 24. He suffered so that we would die to sin and live to righteousness. So now there's a call to sanctification. He suffered so that you would die to sin and live to righteousness. The third statement is in our passage, so that he may bring us to God. And the fourth is in chapter 4, verse 13. He suffered so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Imitation, sanctification, access to God, and future glory and exaltation. That kind of covers the whole spectrum of the Christian life. Right? Every element that we're supposed to be concerned about is a result of the cross of Jesus Christ. Those are powerful statements in First Peter. So I want you to not miss the intentionality of the cross. God made a purpose. God, God, let me say it this way. God had set a purpose for the cross, and it comes out in those four statements. But why was the path to God forbidden? Isaiah 59 verse 2 makes it super simple. Isaiah 59 verse 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. That's it. That's the answer. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Which is why, in order for the path to God to be restored, the veil had to be torn from top to bottom. God had to restore the path. God had to open the way. God had to welcome you back in. God had to send his own son to die for us in order to restore that path. So if you think about a chasm, and you can't get from one side to the other, the bridge is the cross. It's in the form of the cross. Jesus Christ had to die on the cross in order for that pathway to be restored because our sin separated us from God. And Peter explains this. So that he may bring us to God, verse 18, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The first phrase just means he died physically. He literally died. Whenever you've come here on an Easter Sunday, you've heard Pastor John preach on the resurrection. And you've, you've probably heard him talk about various theories that try to dismiss the resurrection. One of them is called 
the missing body theory, or there's another one, the swoon theory. The fact is, some people say that Jesus didn't really die. Right? He kind of passed out, he was put into the grave, and then he came to his senses and walked out. Lots of problems with that theory, not only the big rock that it took a bunch of soldiers to put there, but he had to figure out a way to get out. And of course, overpower all those soldiers, and then all the soldiers would be killed because you can't really miss a, a prisoner. Acts 12 gives you an example of that. When Peter goes missing because an angel released him, all the soldiers were executed. Lots of theories have been provided in, in history to dismiss the actual death of Jesus. Peter says he was put to death in the flesh and he was made alive in the spirit. So he physically died and he was resurrected. What does that mean in the spirit? Listen to Romans 8.11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Made alive in the spirit, made alive by the spirit. And that same spirit will give you and I life in the future. He will give us life. That's the resurrection that's promised to all of us. The same power that gave life to Jesus, God's spirit, will give us life in the future. That's all Peter means by that statement. But here's what happens. When he was made alive, he went on a journey. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 says this. It was fitting for him from whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. It was fitting. It was appropriate. It was logical for God from whom are all things and through whom are all things to bring many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation. In other words, Jesus didn't come alone into glory. He's bringing a mass of believers with him. Saved sinners. Jesus is going on the journey after the resurrection and he's bringing all these saved sinners with him. That's the idea behind this statement. So Jesus bridges the chasm between God and man. He saves us and he takes us into glory with him. But as he does this, he's going to make sure that everyone knows that he's not a victim. He's victorious. And that takes us to our third outcome and verse 19. In which, so in the spirit, by the spirit, being alive, verse 19, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. The third outcome of the cross of Jesus Christ, of the suffering of Christ, is the proclamation of victory. The proclamation of victory. Jesus declared himself victorious. And this is the most complicated part of the passage. Okay, what are we talking about when it says that Jesus made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits? All right, now, remember, or kind of take yourself back to like college days in your college classroom and start thinking with me, all right? I'm going to start talking about the text to help you understand how we have to spend some time in the text 
begin to assess certain words to come to the most appropriate conclusion. So he says this, spirits now in prison. Some people think those are spirits of the dead humans in the past. And now Jesus goes to hell in order to declare victory and offer them salvation and save them out of hell. Because they take the word spirits as referring to human spirits. We are spiritual beings. We are eternal beings. The soul is an eternal part of our composition. But here's the deal. In the New Testament, this word for spirits is most often used to refer to actual supernatural spirits, not human beings. Moreover, it's most often used to refer to evil spirits. That's the word that's a, that appears in this passage. There's a whole bunch of texts I have in my notes if you want to know exactly what we're talking about. In verse 20, to distinguish between humans and supernatural beings, he talks about eight persons. So we know he's talking about Noah's family. And he uses a different word to describe humans in the same passage. In other words, he's trying to draw a contrast. You have the supernatural spirits, but then you have the humans as well. That's a different word in our own passage. And when you have that taking place, you realize, okay, there are different meanings. So it's inappropriate for us to conclude that the spirits are the dead humans from past history. Now, they are in prison. So we're talking about some evil spirits in prison. What are we talking about? What kind of prison are these evil spirits, they just call them demons, for the sake of simplicity, placed? Well, understand that the word for prison is used to refer to Satan's place, the abyss, a place where the demons are in the New Testament. Revelation chapter 18, verse 2, verse 20. I'm sorry, chapter 20, verse 7. 2 Peter 2, 4. Those places use the same term to describe the abyss, the place where Satan's domain is at. When we pull out a little bit outside the Bible, in contemporary literature, there's a book that was written sometime between 200 BC and 100 AD. It's called First Enoch. Jude refers to it. Second Peter refers to it. First Enoch is a big book. It's a long book. I've read parts of it. Um, it's like kind of like reading the Bible, but sometimes it's a little bit more mystical. There's a section in that book that talks about something that's very similar to our passage, and then we're going to go to Second Peter in just a second, and even more so, a, pair, a, a comparison for us. There is a story about four fallen angels who are now bound in chains. They are imprisoned, and they were put there in the time of Noah. That's in our context as well. And they were put there because they saw beautiful women on the earth and decided to leave God's heavenly abode as angels and they came to earth, took on human bodies, they cohabitated with these women, committed sins, they introduced humans to sin and shame and injustice and God, in this book of First Enoch, as a way to show vengeance or kind of punishment is a better term, on them, he bound them forever in this prison. The details of that story are very similar to 1 Peter chapter 3. And then if you go to 2 Peter, please do, 2 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 4 and 5. 
Second Peter, generally, is an argument against false teachers and how we need to be careful not to follow them, not to listen to them, not to imitate them. And they're described in the first three verses of chapter 2 as lustful, sensual, greedy. And then in verse 4, it says this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if God didn't condemn the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, we skip down to verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment from the day of judgment. Because they indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. So you have another passage, the second letter of Peter, talking about something very similar. Some kind of angels, when they sinned, they were put into hell, the pits of darkness, awaiting their final judgment. This all took place in the days of Noah. Go to Jude, chapter 1, verse 6. Jude, verse 6. Just a few chapters to the right, or a few books to the right, rather. Verse 6, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. That's we're talking about the fall of angels now. He kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as those, as who? As those, the angels. In the same way as these angels indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So you have three New Testament passages that have a similar narrative. Angels falling, being kept for judgment, strange immorality going on there, and God will ultimately judge them, but now they're in some pit, some some abyss, a prison. Now go to Genesis chapter 6. I'm so sorry if you're freezing. I don't know how to fix it, but I'm so sorry that you're freezing. I mean, I'm okay if somebody wants to see if these heaters are working. Just don't set the church on fire, please. That's my only request. Jose, you want to help them? Thank you. All right. Genesis chapter 6. And uh, we're going to read the first eight verses just so you understand exactly what we just alluded to, but is the background, not only for our text, but for Second Peter, the book of Jude, and the book of First Enoch. I guess if it gets really bad, just kind of huddle around those heaters. Just still try to listen to me. That's all I ask. I will take a minute. All right, well, Genesis 6. I'll just read, and this is a famous and a familiar pa- uh, passage, but I'm going to make a couple of comments that hopefully will give us insight into our passage, okay? Now, it came about when the men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God, 
saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whoever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not strive with men forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will will rather blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So, we have sons of God. It's going to make the conclusion from the other passages. We're talking about angels who saw the daughters of man, and they saw them as beautiful. They married them. And, of course, we're talking about now cohabitation. And then God's response is, I need to judge the world with a flood. And we see the sin and the depravity and the spiral of sin, specifically in verse 5. Every intent of the thought of his heart was only to do evil continually. God is sorry that he made man, but Noah finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. So you have, in human history, this season where something supernatural takes place. So the best reconciliation of all of these texts, including... 2 Peter, Jude, 1 Peter. And then we talked about Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that? We just read that in 2 Peter and in Jude. It's referring to chapter 19. And listen to chapter 19, just a couple verses. Verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. Verse 4. Before they lay down, so before everybody went to bed in um, Lot's house, The men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we may have sexual relationships with them. They were so possessed by this lust, verse 11, that the angels had to strike the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both great and small. In other words, young and old. So Sodom and Gomorrah, we know, was uh, characterized by homosexuality. And God judged it later in this chapter. But look at the end of verse 11. So that they wearied themselves trying to find the door. That is how possessed they were to sin. That they became tired in pursuit of it. It happens, I think, sometimes in our own lives. We're so committed to satisfying lust, we spend hours in pursuit of it. That's the example. But here's the reason that I wanted to read that. Because of what Peter and Jude say. That God saw that as something perverted. Strange flesh. Angels and humans. That's an insight into Genesis 6. You have sons of God, angels, seeing women, falling in love with them, taking on human bodies, and then cohabitating with them. And the result of all that is the flood. So taking all of these passages together, what we see happening is this. 
God judges those angels to an abyss, to a prison. And they're still there now. And they're waiting for the final day of judgment when all of hell is thrown into the lake of fire. Just so you know, hell is temporary. The lake of fire is permanent in the Bible. God takes hell and places it into the lake of fire. And in that final judgment is when God judges these fallen angels as well. In Luke chapter 8, verse 31, there's a fascinating insight into a conversation between Jesus and Legion. Remember Legion, the man who had a legion of angels, of demons? And then when Jesus casts them out, they say this. They were imploring him not to command them to go to the abyss. The idea most likely being there's this holding place with a bunch of other fallen demons who are being reserved for the day of judgment. And these demons knew that those are severely judged and will be judged. And they don't want to go to that spot. And so Jesus releases them and frees this man. But they were aware of this place with other demons being imprisoned. So putting all of this together, here's what I think is happening back in 1 Peter chapter 3. Jesus dies. He's made alive in verse 18 in the spirit. And now he declares victory. The Bible is filled with passages that speak to the supernatural cosmic war between God and Satan. Job 1 and 2, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 6, Ephesians 3, Philippians 2, Colossians 2, many, many more places. Pentateuch has passages about it. The Psalms have passages about it. In other words, there's a supernatural war going on. And so Jesus, to demonstrate that he's actually victorious over the demons in the darkness. Remember in John, uh, rather Luke 22, it says, this is the power and the hour of darkness. In other words, Satan threw everything he had at Jesus during the moment of the cross in order to stop the crucifixion because he knew what would be the outcome. He knew that people would be saved. He knew that the path to God would be restored. He knew that Jesus would declare victory over Satan. And so he did everything he could possibly do that night in Gethsemane, through the Roman soldiers, through the Jewish soldiers, through the Sanhedrin, to stop and to destroy Jesus' plan. But ultimately, Jesus succeeded. And so now, back in 1 Peter 3, Jesus goes and makes a proclamation to these spirits in prison who were disobedient in the days of Noah, when only eight people were saved, and we're going to talk about that in a minute as it takes us into verse 21. One other thing I wanted to mention in understanding this play, this passage. As I said a minute ago, some people say Jesus' proclamation was an offer of the gospel to the previously dead individuals to save them. And so they take this word proclamation because oftentimes in the Bible, it is used to refer to the gospel being proclaimed. But here's what we have to note. In 1 Peter, we talked about this before, Peter reserves the word evangelism, evangelizomai is the Greek word, evangel, to only refer to the proclamation of the gospel. That's not the word here. And this word actually has a broader definition. It can refer to proclamation of victory, good news. When a Roman general would come back to Rome for a victorious war, he would go through the, uh, to the, uh, through the sacred way in Rome, Appian Way, 
uh, Appia Sacra, which is the, the white kind, the center of Rome, Colosseum, and uh, um, the Roman form tied it together. And he would go, all the slaves were behind him, the various soldiers were behind him. He would go to the temple of Jupiter, offer incense, receive his crown of victory. And he was, being de- he was declaring the good news of, I've saved Rome from the enemies. That word is used to describe those moments. So here, because Peter so carefully uses the same word in every other text to describe the preaching of the gospel, because he doesn't use that word in verse 19, we can assume that he's not talking about the preaching of the gospel to these spirits in prison. He's talking about something different, a different proclamation, the proclamation of victory and triumph. Again, these kind of particular details help us understand what is the meaning behind this text. If you want to know where that word is used, it's 112, 125, and 46. 112, 125, and 46, that's the word for the preaching of the good news. So Jesus is proclaiming victory to these spirits. Where is he doing this? How is he doing this? Is Jesus going down to hell? Is he paying a visit to them? Kind of shaking the keys and saying, I won. Like, what's the scene, right? What's the scene of this? Jesus goes and proclaims victory. Does he have to see them face to face? Is this happening between his death, let's say Friday and Sunday, and the resurrection in that three-day period? When is, it, when is this happening? Well, here's what I, need, I want you guys to observe. There are three examples of movement, journey, happening in this text. Verse 18, so that he may bring us to God. That's the first motion, movement happening in the passage, right? Now, that's a movement upward. God is not in hell. God is in heaven, right? Second motion is verse two, or verse 19, rather. He went and made a proclamation. That's the one we're questioning. We're trying to figure this out. The third one is verse 22, okay? He's at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven. So that's the third motion. Again, Jesus is going to heaven. The word that's used in verse 22 and in our passage, verse 19, is the same word. So we can conclude that if the first motion is to heaven, if the third motion is to heaven, and the word for the third motion is the same as the word for the second motion, you can conclude, okay, we're talking about movement in the same place, into the same place, heaven. So the proclamation by Jesus isn't happening in hell, nor on earth, it's happening from heaven to these spirits who are being declared disobedient from the days of Noah, as he says, I won. Jesus is the victor in this moment. And you can even see the preview. We'll get there in just a second. Verse 22, he is superior in heaven over angels, authorities, and powers. All three of those refer to supernatural being supernatural powers. All right. The worst is behind us. All right. The hardest part is behind us. So as the synthesis of this whole thing, Jesus is victorious. He's not a victim. He declares his victory to the demons who have been held bound since Genesis chapter 6 for the final day of judgment. He declares victory from heaven. You can see an example of that in Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, if you want to read that in the future. And Jesus says, I am the victor over all of Satan's attempts to sabotage the plan of salvation. Jesus is victorious. 
Why would Peter bring all this up? When we're talking about suffering unjustly and being faithful, what in the world? Why do you have to make it so stinking complicated and take us into various texts to kind of figure this out? Let me give you a couple of reasons. The first one is assurance. Assurance. Because the same Satan who has set demons loose in this world to tempt us and destroy us and undermine our faith. In Matthew 22, it says, even to seduce the elect, if it were possible. The same devil in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says, he is like a lion on a prowl, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by the brothers who are in the world. In other words, you know that Satan is after you. Let's pray this and start raining. You know that Satan is after you. But there is assurance that Jesus won. Jesus is victorious. And he declared his victory from heaven. Secondly, is obedience. Obedience. The disobedient, verse 20, are in prison forever until final day of judgment. Therefore, obey. We've talked about obedience multiple times so far in this letter. Don't imitate disobedience because that results in ultimate final judgment. Third is endurance. Suffer by being faithful. Proclaim the gospel to the people. And then he takes us into Noah. Noah is the example here. All this took place in the days of Noah, but God saved him. God protected him through the ark. So if God was able to protect Noah and he was judging these demons when he was judging the world for its sin, God is able to preserve you as well. No matter what's happening in your life. And Noah waited for 120 years, it says, we read that already, for God's final salvation. And we read that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And in verse 10, we just read this, the God of all grace is the one who will sustain you when the devil is trying to destroy you. That's the same God. Well, Peter, as we wrap it up in just a few minutes, Peter continues the metaphor and says, okay, now let's talk about Noah and how this salvation imagery is applicable to us today. Noah is the one who was in the ark, protected, verse 21. Corresponding to that, so akin to that, baptism now saves you. Hold up. We've always said salvation by grace through faith. Where in the world? How is baptism salvific? You've heard of the International Church of Christ. They believe that baptism saves you. You have to be baptized to be saved in their church, not in any church, but definitely in their church. So how do you understand this? Keep reading. Not the physical removal of dirt from the flesh. In other words, not by being dipped into physical water. That's not the salvation we're talking about. Rather, an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you've done an interview for membership with me, all of you have been asked the same question. Do you really believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus? And why is that important? And give me a passage in the Bible. If you're going to get interviewed by me tonight, there's three of you, find a passage. Why is that important? Because baptism now saves you, not the physical dip. But through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no salvation 
apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can't use this passage, by the way. That's the importance of the resurrection to the Christian faith. We're saved because Jesus is a living Savior. There is no salvation through a dead Savior. That's what we believe and that's what we confess. And so Peter says, now, as a Christian, you are saved, you're protected. Now, what does this mean corresponding to that, an appeal to God for a good conscience? Here's what the early Christians did in baptism. They were asked a question. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Acts 8.37 is an example of that. Acts 8.37. And the affirmation is, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, and they get baptized. There were other questions being asked, but that is the kind of the crux of the interview. So what happens is this. He's, what Peter is doing is he's saying this. You are saying that you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Okay? How do you prove that? How do you show that, that Jesus Christ is your Savior? Post-conversion. A response, the word appeal is actually the word response. A response to God for or from a good conscience. What's the response? Baptism. The reason that we say the first example of obedience post-conversion is baptism is because of this passage. Because if you are a Christian, you will say, I'm a Christian. I'm going to identify with Christ. I'm going to be baptized into the church. I want to stand with his people. Baptism is that physical manifestation of the spiritual reality. Again, not the physical removal of dirt from the flesh. He's not talking about the dipping as being salvific. He's talking about your commitment as a demonstration to God. I am saved. I want to get baptized. That's the response. Are you a believer? I am. Here's my response. Baptism. So that's what he means by verse 21. In that sense, baptism demonstrates your salvation. Well, where does this all take us? It takes us to verse 22 and our final outcome in the certainty of Jesus's suffering as providing benefits to us and to him. Here it is. He's now at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. He is preeminent over all. He is preeminent Overall, Colossians 2.15, Ephesians 1.20, Ephesians 3.10 and 11, talk about Jesus being preeminent over all spiritual powers. Synonyms, or rather cross-references to this passage. And they all say that Jesus is over them. He's at the right hand of God. So now Peter ends this paragraph. Remember, remember. He's encouraging us to be faithful in the middle of suffering. And he says, this is how I ended. We're going to heaven. That's the ending scene. And we're not just going to heaven. We're going straight to the throne of God. Because there we find Jesus at the right hand of God. Over all angels and authorities and powers. He wants us to capture this moment. This is the gravity of salvation. Christ is in heaven. He's taking you there with him. Hebrews 2.10. And now as a preview, look at what happened from the suffering of Christ. He didn't stay in the grave. He didn't stay on this earth. He went straight to heaven, not in some corner far away from the Father. No, right at the right hand of God. He's right there. Now, Peter, in order to, I would say, encourage us and to demonstrate the gravity of the scene, quotes the most quoted Old Testament messianic verse. 
29 times in the New Testament. Psalm 110, verse 1, many of you know it. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That is the most quoted, cited, alluded to Old Testament Messianic prophets in the New Testament. And Peter takes it and says, you know this prophecy. This is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Jesus Christ is on the right of the Father, a position of authority and influence. Repeatedly in his, in his ministry, Jesus says, I'm going to end up there. I'm going to be at the right hand of the Father. When right before crucifixion, Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, they ask him, are you the son of God? He says, yes, I am. And you will see the son of man standing at the right hand of the Father. Jesus declares it, and then they crucify him. And Peter says, this is what's happening here. Jesus went straight to heaven because that's where he belongs. But here is where it gets interesting. Whenever the New Testament writers quote Psalm 110 verse 1, they quote it directly. At the right hand of God. There are eight times where they say in the right hand of God. That's not Psalm 110. Psalm 110 says at. Peter says in. In the Greek, not in the English. I get that. Listen this way. Who is in the right hand of God? Now, that doesn't make any sense, right? Jesus is not sitting in the hand. What is he talking about? Why the change of this proposition? Because of Psalm 16. It's on the screen. Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. I have said the Lord. This is a messianic psalm, by the way. So the Messiah says, I have said the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. At is the preposition. Therefore, my heart is glad. My glory rejoices. My flesh will also dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to shield, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forever. In the same psalm, there's the at, and then there's the in. Guess who uses this psalm in Acts, the very first sermon in Jerusalem? Peter. He uses this psalm to prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says he is at the right hand of God. He is in the right hand of God in First Peter 3. What is he talking about? When you read verse 11... In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forever. Jesus is the preeminent one. But he is the one who is in an intimate relationship with God. We're talking about joy, delight, pleasure, intimacy. When Jesus prays in John 17, the glory that I had with you before the world was, restore it back. The intimacy is back. There was a period of 30 or so years when Jesus was a human walking on this earth. There was a slight separation from the Father. Now it's back. He is in the right hand of the Father because he is in an intimate relationship with the Father. And he is the one who rules over all. And here's one last Old Testament reference for you. When Peter talks about all things being subject to him, the authorities, the angels, and powers, he says something that is very similar to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, many of you have memorized this. Verses 9 through 11. For this reason, after the suffering of Christ, right, he became a man, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is quoting Isaiah chapter 45, verses 22 and 23. And it says... God, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. The salvific context of that authoritarian statement, authoritative statement rather, turn to me, be saved. There is no other savior. There is no other God. Verse 23, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back that to me, says Yahweh, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. God says in Isaiah 45, no, everybody will worship me. Philippians 2, 1 Peter 3, and many other places, Jesus says, every knee will bow to me. You've got God and Jesus competing. No, God says, you are the Lord of lords. You are the king of kings. You are the preeminent one. You are the one who rules over every, everything. That is the result of the suffering of Christ. Jesus went higher. And he became the preeminent one over all. If you want to be motivated for faithfulness in your suffering for the gospel, look to those results. This is specific to the life of Jesus. But don't forget 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. If we endure... We will reign with him. It's that simple. Paul says this right before he's decapitated. If we are faithful, if we endure, we will reign with him. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, superior one, reigning over all. But he says, endure, stay faithful, and you will reign with me. And at the end of Revelation, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. That's the final image. Peter doesn't leave this focusing on their Christ. He takes it forward with the other New Testament passages and says, you will also reign with him and you will be on his throne forever and ever and ever. If there's anything that should motivate us to be faithful to Jesus Christ, no matter the cost, is this future glory with Christ reigning with him. Because if you remain faithful until the end, I will give you the crown of life and I will sit you on my throne. That's the promise of 1 Peter chapter 3. The most complicated passage in the New Testament becomes hopefully the most encouraging passage. For you to say, I'm going to be faithful. I will spread the gospel. I will talk about the hope that's within me, even if it means suffering. And I will reign with him. And I will come and see over him. That's right. Lord God, it's cold. <laughs> but we are so grateful that even in this moment, of trembling. We are reminded of your love for us, of your victory for us, of your salvation for us, and of the love that we can experience with you forever and ever.
nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And so nothing is spared by you, our Father, because of Jesus' sacrifice. I pray for those who do not know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. To those who, to whom this whole message is perhaps even confusing still, not in any way encouraging. I ask that the Holy Spirit would enter their lives and show them that Jesus Christ is Savior, that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that they too must bow their knees before him. For the rest of us, keep us faithful until the end, until we see you face to face and until we reign with you. We pray this to the glory of your amazing name. Amen.